Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he will eat around the bite taken out of his hamburger. Just make sure there's no cheese on there. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Code 33. Code 33. Code 33. Lockdown is now in effect. The Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 304, Blindsided, is brought to you by Bullseye Burgers. Who uses a fork? Pete, here we are. It's Friday. We made it. We are recording this, though, before the sun has set across the nation, before the calendar has slipped to the next day. Will Netflix have broken our hearts again? We'll have to find out next time that we talk to see if there's another cancellation. It's scary times, Pete, scary times. It is. Hopefully everybody comes through that we haven't already lost uh, 100%. And uh, yeah, keep watching these shows because that seems to be what, what people are pointing about. And then tweet about them, Matt. Yes, we saw an article earlier this week that was... I think doing its best to try and find a correlation between social media uh, discussion for these shows and extrapolate what that might mean for Netflix uh, stuff. And gee whiz, Pete, Iron Fist took a big dip. Luke Cage took a big dip. Less dips for Jessica Jones and Daredevil, but dips nonetheless. The end could be nigh, Pete. Not for our lack of talking about these shows. One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Fisk's up at 5.50 a.m., ready for his room check and completely compliant with Dex and Lim. The agents exit Fisk's room and the kingpin watches from above. At Matt's apartment, Matt sneaks in with the hidden key in the hallway radiator. He seems to luxuriate in being home then changes into a suit and walks out. He walks the street, hailing a taxi, sans sunglasses, and gets taken to the jail, where he fakes being foggy to get in. In a sweet, sweet apartment with Marcy, foggy monologues about the ghosting Matt has given him, with an odd, perhaps misplaced, touch of comedy in the scene, Marcy suggests Foggy get out in public, which will protect him, run for DA as the anti-Fisk candidate. The credits show the episode is written by Liwa Nasruddin, veteran of the Goldbergs and the Real O'Neills, and directed by Alex Garcia Lopez. This, the fourth episode this year that we have podcasted of Alex Garcia Lopez's. He directed two episodes of Cloak and Dagger and a Luke Cage this year, along with Farther Back in His Past, Fear the Walking Dead, Residue, Utopia, etc., Back to the episode, Matt's visiting with an inmate named Michael, who curses like a sailor but loves Nelson and Murdoch. The inmate has some in with the Albanians, but not with Vic. Nobody gets in with Vic, and Albanian goons in the room are watching. A knuckle sandwich later, Michael is out, and quote-unquote Mr. Nelson just needs to fill out some paperwork. Matt gets led deeper and deeper into the prison, with the camera work making things feel worse. Matt is seen by a nurse of sorts who ultimately jabs him with a needle. The phone rings and Matt is told by Fisk that he's got amazing reflexes for a blind man. When they last spoke, 
Matt didn't just threaten Fisk. He threatened Vanessa. Matt walks out into the hall. The fight of the season has begun. He takes out inmates, then is cornered by corrections officers in riot gear. Another inmate grabs him, and he's got his meeting with Vic, who tells Matt that Fisk controls half the inmates and guards. The Albanians are accused of trying to kill him twice, once outside and once inside, but Vic takes no credit for the prison shanking. Indeed, Fisk shanked Fisk by way of a bribed lifer, and now the lifer is free. What's his name? Jasper Evans. An Albanian in stolen riot gear shuttles Matt out, through halls and into a waiting room where the riot continues. Into the yard they go and through the tear gas and gates. Matt makes his way out, back into the waiting cab. At the hotel, Nadim is pulling long hours and happy to see his wife, and distressed to hear son Sammy is scared for Papa's future. This job is taking a toll. Later, Dex screens the room service delivery, taking a bite out of the hamburger, but conspicuously leaving the metal cover on. Dex, watching via cameras, smiles as the hamburger is revealed to Fisk, but the kingpin merely cuts out the bit piece and eats his burger with a spork. Special Agent Wynne arrives, sending Dex out for coffee. In the hall, Nadim tells him not to sweat the fact that the Office of Professional Responsibility has noted the inconsistencies and wants to talk to Fisk. After the off-screen Fisk chat, Nadim and his bosses talk about the effect of work shootings on their daughters. Nadim's boss's suggestion, treat your kid like a confidential informant, a CI. The lies that keep us safe are worth telling. Elsewhere, Karen is making headway in the Fisk Hotel case, but Foggy is there with news that Matt is alive. At his apartment, they continue the conversation. It's like something was missing from Matt. Karen goes from irate to focused in her anger. Besides, she's out to stop Fisk. Later, it looks like Foggy might be too. He tracks down Detective Mahoney, trying to get a boost to talk to the officers. Ultimately, Foggy does just that and delivers his speech to the policeman's union. Fisk should be put in the ground and Blake Tower has done nothing. Will the illustrious union back Foggy? One by one, they do. Meanwhile, Karen is out for a walk, hearing youths catcalling. Bathed in red neon light, she pulls her gun, scaring them with her dark side. And the gun. She keeps walking and pursues the Shell Company story, but pushes hard, maybe too hard. The suggestion, talk to Felix Manning. Back at the hotel, Dex is there even though he is off duty. He sends Lim downstairs for coffee, all this coffee, and watches the Fisk interview from OPR. The questions start immediately, focusing on how Point Dexter killed the Albanians. Surprisingly, Fisk vouches for Dex, acting in self-defense, he says. Dex shows relief, but turns off the camera and talks to Fisk personally. Fisk notes that the press is investigating Dex's exceptionalism, vilifying his courage. Fisk says the real heroes are being ridiculed and dismissed. The episode concludes with Matt in the cab, a different driver, sending Matt and the car into the river, black water filling the interior. Objection, Your Honor, is badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, we have to start with Fisk, who who starts the episode, starts the episode looking from the, the top of that little, I don't know, 
that that little top of the stairs there, literally looking down on his uh, on his uh, you know those keeping him in prison, and uh, certainly no question as to his villainy throughout the episode. We've talked all season about how much Vincent D'Onofrio can do with a look, with facial stubble. Um, and here in this episode, his presence looming beyond his seeming captivity. I say seeming because we have to discuss that in our uh, next segment, Matt, when we take a sidebar. But um, again, it's just a master class of intimidation, of, of presence, of manipulation. It is, Pete, and he is so good in this episode, and this whole episode is so good, it had me thinking of the old fable of the boiling frog. We enjoyed, we, we got enjoyment out of the last season of Iron Fist. Uh, Luke Cage, the most recent season, spoke to us on a variety of levels. This is good Marvel TV. This episode this season is excellent and it's yeah. retroactively making me reassess prior seasons of all sorts of things being including you know our beloved dear agents of shield which did not have a season this good for its last season and it does it all come down to the bad guy certainly a large part of it does i think too there's been a tendency to overstuff things and when you think of the simplicity of this season thus far. And you think too, like we've not overdone Fisk. We, we always want to see him, but there there's never quite enough. Think too, like how little we've seen sister Maggie at this point. Um, and, and she's absolutely soaking up the screen when she's on it. Um, and, and then you get that sequence in the prison, which, Forget about it. From from the moment that Fisk makes that phone call till 11 minutes later where uh, Matt is hyperventilating, leaving prison, falling asleep um, from whatever was injected to him uh, in the car, uh, in the cab, just absolutely sublime and it doesn't happen without a, a villain like fisk pulling those strings pete kind of a catch-all series of villainy here the prisoners in in the prison uh i think we have to include the uh the vile guards as well but just that that general mass of humanity out to get our hero matt murdoch from the the nurse who first tries to take Matt down to the, the trio of guys that he fights outside the infirmary and then back into it. Um, I, it's, it's such a great sequence. Um, particularly enjoyed Matt. We, we don't see him kick much um, and coming across and, and kicking over the, um, the, the chair there in the infirmary and then he gets the guards outside. Initially, it's like, all right, you know, hey, here are the guards. But no, they're Fisk's guards and they're going to beat him up. And he faces them. And yes, you do get a break within the fight. But it's it's storytelling that's going on and that they stopped production for a day and fully rehearsed this one camera, one take sequence 
and you know, they're, like Eric Olson said, they're um, they're stunt people. Uh, you know, put them down for an Emmy now. We have to mention the name Chris Brewster. That is the stunt coordinator and stunt double uh, for for Charlie Cox. Only because I have watched the season one hallway fight enough times to to see where they swapped out uh, Brewster for Cox. Yeah. That's the only reason why when I watched this fight, I kind of was able to see the seams a little bit. Particularly, you know, the best stunt people, not only do they do their stunts, but when they fall, they, they cover their face and they find artistic ways to do it. And... Bottom line, Pete, as I was watching it, I was aware occasionally when they would swap out uh, Charlie Cox for Chris Brewster and then back again. But that's not a criticism. It's an amazing job that they did. Are we certain, Matt, that the stunt double is in this scene? They swear this is one uncut, one take sequence. One cut, one take to be sure. But... When they are initially in the hall, there's a scene, there's a, not a scene, there's a moment where Matt gets knocked down and the camera stays up. And then for the next, I don't know, 90 seconds or something, as Matt gets thrown against the wall, thrown down to the ground, you can't see his face at all. His arm is in the way or somebody's leg is in the way. Um, there's another portion of the fight. It might be after that. I don't quite remember, but there's a moment where matt gets thrown back into the exam room and gets thrown pretty hard behind the exam table you see him get thrown there and then you see charlie cox come out on all fours charlie cox was hiding behind that exam table as chris brewster got thrown into it and they did the swap out behind it little things like that if you go back and look for it and ask yourself can i find where the where, where the swap outs are you'll see them but again not a criticism that's just the art of the fight Okay, I uh, will take your word for it. I they, yeah, they've been so demonstrative about this sequence. I I, I almost don't want to know the magic of it. <laughs> um, key within that sequence, and you know, just real quick about the the prisoners too. I love that, you know, once he's beaten up, um, once Matt's beaten up the uh, the guards, and we go into full lockdown. You know, we start lighting fires. Uh, it, it gets really shady. <laughs> there, there's a mayhem to that sequence that is scary and delicious at the same time, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, it's kind of, you know, the worst case scenario, prison riot, but also it's adding, it's adding smoke. It's adding things like that, where you can hide uh, the swap out of actor, uh, police and riot gear with stunt police and Rocky or you know, whatever it is that you need to do to help fill the scene. If only just with a sense of dread, you can really load things up with smoke and chaos and fire and, and things of that sort. So midway through that, of course, um, Matt runs into, uh, Vic Yusifi, uh, the Albanian, uh, syndicate chieftain. He's there masquerading as foggy, to uh, try to talk to and he gets this audience with this massive riot uh, happening all around them. Yeah, and the big the big info there, Pete, although not big to me because I saw it coming, but this idea that the Albanians did not shank Fisk. Fisk yeah. shanked Fisk. We talked um, about 
Yes. Yeah, we did. And I think that, I mean, it, look, particularly since we have this global top-down view of all the different players, we could kind of see this coming a little bit, but it's good to have it confirmed. Yeah. And, uh, particularly enjoyed, I hope we get a little bit more with, uh, with Vic there. Um, the, the aspect, you know, there's that honor among Steve's that, uh, we've seen from time to time in hell's kitchen. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. This guy's behind bars, uh, in, in story sense for a good reason, no doubt. Um, even when, um, Matt came to the prison under false pretenses to speak to the other gentleman. Was it Mike, right? Oh, Michael. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, uh, he and foggy had defended and argued his time down, um, that he's, you know, trying to get an audience with Vic and, you know, Mike winds up having to hit him to, to prove, that, uh, you know, oh, I, I don't know anything. I, I don't know this guy. You know, I'm not I'm not down with what he's trying to do. And this entire sequence comes crashing down on their heads. And uh, Vic has lost uh, his his baby cousin and he wants retribution. He does, Pete, and also wanting retribution. And I dare say maybe the first time since the first season that uh, this character has appeared on the villains list, we see Karen possibly out for some kind of bloodlusty revenge. I don't think it's very solidified in her mind. I also know, strictly speaking, story-wise, she's headed to go continue to chase the story and, and go talk to the source and all that. But bathed in that red neon light that Alex Garcia Lopez sees fit to... Uh, almost damn her with that with that red neon light it um you know she, i'm not excusing at all the 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 cat calling and and mild harassment that's going on right. from those those youths but to respond with i'm gonna pull a gun on you is yeah. is out of out of uh proportion there's there's a breaking point we've seen her with a gun before we flash back all the way to season one and her murder of wesley which has never really been addressed. Um, justice for Wesley, Matt. If if Barb Holland on Stranger Things uh, can get some level of justice, can't can't Wesley? Um, but yeah, she she knows she did wrong there by by uh, you know uh, drawing down on those kids. Tries to to mask her uh, you know discussion with the kid as as trying to save him, but you know knows it's the wrong thing to do. And this is not how we're used to seeing our Karen page. Pete, let's talk about that cab driver at the end of the episode. That was not the cab driver that they left with Pete. Uh, I think something is afoot here and he's awfully villainous. What with uh, driving the car off the pier, but him not being in there. I hope that they paid that nice cabbie enough. And he just took, uh, a long walk, hopefully not off the short pier that they drove off. <laughs> that would be something, Pete. That would be that's that's how you know that there are writers for these things uh, to sit and say, "Oh, then doth the cabbie die with the cab in the East River?" Uh, we can only hope. Although something tells me we're probably not going to do a cabbie side story. I mean, what is this, Pete? Iron Fist. <laughs> 
Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Pete, I have a big theory here. My theory is that there is someone in the FBI, I'm going to go on a limb and say limb, uh, but somebody in the FBI in the presidential hotel is on the Fisk payroll. Why do I say this? Because Fisk has his uh, special TV monitor room right? somewhere there, and the way they shoot it, again, Alex Garcia Lopez, okay, four episodes of MCU so far that we've seen this year. He's got another one coming for Daredevil. He's got Punisher next year as well. This guy is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but he does this close-up, tight focus, black background, so you don't have a sense. Is this a broom closet? Is this in the sub-basement that Fisk got to with the bat pole, whatever it is? We don't know where it is, but his level of access must be aided by someone, I say Agent Lim. And it's reinforced by the room being tossed at the beginning of the episode by uh, Lim and, and um, uh, Poindexter. So, yeah, that was exactly where my mind went. You know, how is he watching um, Matt and, and calling him on the phone if – his uh, place is tossed if his hamburgers are half eaten. Which, look, I understand the Kingpin is a horrendously bad person. Either the dude gets his meal or he doesn't get his meal. Do we need to, like, I'm going to terrify him by taking a bite out of his dinner? Like, there, there's a lack of decency I there. I don't think it's terrifying. I, it's disrespectful. It's these agents lowering themselves i'm grateful matt they didn't take the low-hanging fruit of then a weight crack on top of abusing his food his food uh so i'm i'm grateful that it was smart writing there and even then dex says oh that's not the way i thought it was gonna go he he gets a form of comeuppance which leads me into my next one there. So we've got the Office of uh, Professional Responsibility, the OPR investigation now. Um, you down with OPR? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm not getting investigated by OPR. Um, everything above board here at Fantastic Geek. But, uh, you know, the, the bite out of the hamburger seems to be a symptom of a larger thing for Special Agent Poindexter. It does, and I think that in the in the creation of this episode, the writing, the writer's room, the whiteboard, whatever it was, maybe that bite out of the hamburger is meant to just be the, the tip of the iceberg for we, the audience, who you, me, all the listeners, of course, remember the shootout, but just kind of, you know, something to jog the, the mind of the average audience member. Um just because that's one one little bit of bad. Now we're going to talk about bad in the past. Branching off of that notion there, Pete, do you think he's being investigated for an excess of force? Or do you think it's excess of force because they suspect some kind of power? And whether they say it or not, that then means Sokovia Accords. And if you're powered, you know, that potentially could be worse than the Kingpin. If you're, you know, if you're a nuclear man, we all know what a disaster Superman 4 was, but you know, 
not knowing what the powers are, that could be 10 times worse than what the Kingpin did. That's really interesting that you would bring that up. Um, I read it as an excess of force, but would Fisk covering for him um, be enough to make him beholden to Fisk? Someone he clearly despises, someone who is essentially the reason, okay, he didn't pull the trigger on the FBI agents, but he put them in the position where they were either hurt or killed. Um, and, oh, you covered for me when I shot two guys who had surrendered. Um, it's going to make them buddy-buddy. I mean, we we know it's going to be more complicated than that because these are good writers. But the shorthand in this episode, if there's a flaw in this episode, it's it's that leap that we're taking. I didn't have as much trouble or any trouble with the leap, and here's why. I think that we kind of as as the objective audience, we can recognize that probably the Albanians were going to kill a normal powered FBI agent number two just by sheer force and then kill Fisk and whatever good that the Department of Justice is hoping to get out of the Fisk deal that's gone as well so you have everybody dead deal gone bad guys win I think from Dex's point of view as certainly someone who is who is talented uh, I suspect we're headed towards some sort of uh, subtle acceptance of power um, he could recognize that killing these men with a, you know, with an, an anticipatory force, that that was the ob objectively right thing to do. However, rules of engagement say he killed those men in cold blood because he was not drawn upon or whatever the, whatever the concern is. So I think in Dex's mind, he knows he did bad by, you know, rule of FBI, even though rule of the wild, he took those guys out before he could be killed. Let's shift gears, Matt, back to the prison, uh, starting with uh, what Matt was injected with. Matt was injected with a little something called end of the episode. Uh, <laughs> what's that tag scene? End of the episode tag scene to be continued itis. Um, they needed something. So it's a disease. They, they <laughs> weaponized the disease. Uh, they did. I mean, to be serious, I'm not, I'm not taking fault with the writing here, but they needed something to have amazing ending. Click on the next episode. And what is that? That is, he wakes up, you know, in this vulnerable position with a killer behind the wheel. Well, why did he fall asleep? Let's backtrack it because he was tired. No, because it's because that we need to have it at the beginning of the of that whole scene and he you know i don't know how long it takes for that stuff to work its way through your system and there's adrenaline and you're getting helped by the albanian and the riot gear but okay about six seven minutes that works for me in storyland well we fade out from that sequence we never see him lose consciousness so it's implied i wonder if there was concern if fisk says well, you just need to keep your eyes open through the rest of this long one take fight that it, it's too over the top and we lose the stinger of the car of, of the cab going off the 
uh, appear. Yeah, I felt that it was, I mean, it was one of those things where it's it's foreshadowing, obviously, when he gets jabbed. But I did not spend the fight saying, but what about what he was injected with? What about what he was injected no, with? It was you, just don't, kind of, you don't think about it. You're thinking yeah. about the 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 claustrophobic setting, the darkness, the uh, his breathing, whatever he was able to do with the physical acting, with the breathing there was was what made me the most riveted by the sequence. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it really was amazing to behold. The only thing that I can compare it to is that hallway fight in season one. And I keep asking myself, which one do I like better just because the this season three one coming after season one, you know, there's a comparison there where there really was no comparison season one. But Pete, yeah. we can discuss that later. We have some thoughts from uh, listeners, etc. What about Nadim's wife and son? There's a little bit of tension there. His son, Sammy, is old enough now seeing this stuff on the news. Um, are they at risk? And what about his boss's suggestion to treat Sammy like a snitch? Like a CI. Um, it might sound like I'm not answering your question, Pete, but I'm not going to answer your question. And here's why. They may be setting up story stuff in the future, but in this episode, it read as so immediate, so raw, so authentic that though we're in the theory segment and, uh, okay, probably decent chance they're setting something up because it's Kingpin and because he knows Agent Nadim's name and things of that sort, um, it just felt so grounded and this an episode pete what's the razzle dazzle in this episode they wouldn't even tell us that it was this episode at new york comic-con but watch out for the episode that has the 11 minute fight you know the business here with nadim is the opposite of that kind of immediate physical fight it's something that we that we can all on a certain level relate to hey family is is concerned for us and and keeping those family connections in a difficult time um i i think that's the true power of the scene what about foggy's write-in campaign here as district attorney pete i rolled my eyes as you asked that not because of the quality of the question but maybe because of the quality of that foggy marcy scene he was kind of oddly like you know <laughs> I can't believe this. I mean, what do you mean? Uh, Blake Towers these days. Like, there was a little too much comedy in there for me in that initial scene. I don't want to go so far as to say this is just a thing to have the character do. Um, unlike, and I don't mean to take unfair pot shots, but unlike, you know, some of the stuff in Iron Fist Season 2 where, hey, we're going to give Joy stuff because she's in the show. So I buy the authenticity of it, but there's kind of like a slight, there's a, Foggy and Marcy are kind of one flavor in this episode and everybody else is a different flavor. Interesting take. I wonder how successful, even on a local level, a write-in campaign would be for a candidate on one issue. And, you know, he goes to the, uh, the police, police benevolence, um, associations meeting there and, and talks to them. Um, 
and it's it is fish in a barrel, but you gotta wonder what his chances would actually be. I think Marcy pegs those chances perfectly, which is not great. Uh, I mean, as I was watching it, I don't know how kind of you know authentic New York we want to be with this, but uh, you know, New York is a pretty solid Democratic town. Blake Tower's already been elected, so it's like, so what? Foggy's going to run against the Democratic machine, or he's going to be part of the Republican minority that still can't beat the Democratic machine? I think she's right. You get some attention for this issue. You also get exposure on yourself, which will keep you safe. Um, it's kind of win-win from there. I think that she's she's the smart lawyer in this situation saying, here's how we can maximize effect and minimize loss, and we'll take it even if it's not, you know, the the, the thrilling win. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, let's start with Facebook. Robert T. Frost writes into the Fantastic Geek Facebook page. Matt and Pete, I just finished episode 303, and I'm drafting myself onto the Fantastic Geek campaign. Yes. Riffing, Riffing off Pete's question from the last podcast and Karen's investigating. Has Fisk orchestrated to protest outside the Safe House Hotel in an effort to keep the FBI off guard and misdirected as to his real intentions? Taking that thought one step further, I have a question for you. Is Vanessa really alive or is she dead? Fisk described love as the perfect prison and she has placed him in it. To get out of physical prison, he has used Vanessa's possible prosecution as his professed motivation. Would he have her killed to get himself out of the perfect prison of love and be truly free? P.S. Isn't a safe house supposed to be secret, not the penthouse of a prominent hotel? Your friend, Bob. Well, I mean, Pete, I just feel like bob just broke my heart because if you can't believe in in you know the monster that is fisk being tamed you know he's the beast being tamed by the beauty of love what can you believe in uh, um yeah <laughs> but he raises a i mean i love that as a theory pete here's the only reason why i'm going to disagree with it and i will admit that this is really really thin ice i have obviously avoided articles about later in the season i know i saw one headline that was like charlie cox on matt's big decision and it's like all right well not for nothing we have a promise in the early episodes that he's gonna go this way or that way and even if it's not that there still could be another big decision i know nothing else i feel like if if vanessa was dead that would have spilled out even to my spoiler free eyes although i don't guarantee it uh i love it as a theory it it truly, it truly dings my heart, though, um, to think that that's a possibility. Uh, listen, uh, Bob always knows how to uh, stir our conversation. Pete, to Twitter we go. Uh, I ran a poll. Daredevil, what was the better fight? The choices were Hallway Season 1, Stairwell Season 2. 
uh, 11 Minutes in Hell from Season 3, and then uh, Other, Reply Below. A little surprised, although not surprised, uh, 53% of the votes went to The Hallway Fight in Season 1, 41% to uh, The Fight from Season 3. No votes, Pete, for that stairwell fight. Um, and we also can I that... add, although it sure. doesn't win out, can I add the um, Frank Castle prison hallway fight in season two? Sure, sure. For if you want to run the poll for consideration, <laughs> I um, see. Yeah, I I just think, given the nature of this most recent one, it's really hard to not give it the edge. Yes, that first season, that first time they do it to us is iconic, but it feels like they've taken it to a place that it can't possibly be topped. Well, Pete, a couple of responses on that topic from our pal, a.k.a. Frank Castle. No, not the one from the show, Pete. This is uh, at DJ underscore Black, B-L-A-K-357 on Twitter. He says, I think the fight in season one was better, but the overall scene in season three was much better. Some of the most intense TV I've ever seen. One shot, one take, one camera. He also says, uh, and we just throw in Daisy's one shot from season two. It deserves more credit. Uh, than it got because the scene was awesome. I just don't think Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has done anything uh, quite on this level. It's a, it's a different type of TV. Um, broadcast would, would never allow for that between the content, between the length, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, Matt, can we just pause for a second and you know talk about how much I appreciate, we appreciate uh, DJ Black's um, – his, his uh, communiques here, uh, always giving us good stuff. Uh, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I know we were, we were in the, uh, the MSG theater with him two years ago uh, for the Marvel stuff, though not in proximity to him. And then he wasn't at New York Comic Con this year. You know, hopefully, Pete, hopefully the fates align and we can uh, we, we can shake hands with uh, with Mr. DJ one of these days before you know it. Shake uh, hands, man. We're going to Josie's. Absolutely. Pete, uh, speaking of uh, meeting up, indeed, this tweet came as we've been recording a uh, tweet from Eric Pritchard. That's at Just Pritch. Uh, he says in response to episode 303, uh, another great listen, need to get a Jersey Shore hangout in the Fantastic Geek penthouse, but hopefully not an emergency <laughs> episode on Saturday. Hashtag save Marvel Netflix defenders. Yeah, no, uh, from his uh, fingertips to uh, Jeff Loeb's ears and, and studio heads on top of that, you know, we, we need to get through a Friday and, and uh, you know, breathe a sigh of relief that another show doesn't get canned so true well pete as efficient as the fantastic geek penthouse is run it's all made possible by our patrons on patreon.com slash fantastic geek yes everybody who contributes at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash fantastic geek with a ph all one word gets access to exclusive podcast content so you're in the building and then you determine what floor you want to get off on if you know you want to be on the key card level 
and and get uh, you know given a hard time by Special Agent Poindexter, you can do that. If you want to have your room tossed, there is a level for that. Uh, so thank you again for helping us keep all these episodes. We're the only podcast that have every single Marvel Cinematic Universe TV episode uh, analyzed, theorized, and uh, would not be possible without those patrons. So to repeat your words, hitting like, I don't know, whatever you call that middlemost part of a target, like, I don't know, if there was some sort of word that could encapsulate that, but we'll just call it middle targety. Uh, Pete, how can people be in touch with you to share their thoughts about this this sizzling third season of Daredevil? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,128 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the PH. You may never get in a hallway fight in a prison, but liking us on Facebook and commenting is pretty much the closest thing you could ever come. So jump in, man. Jump in. Pete, to those listening on the Daredevil podcast feed, we will be back on Sunday for sure. Okay. We can just be confirmed in that knowledge. <laughs> Over on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, I hope we don't need to talk more losing of the Defenders in a, you know, not in a show form. Somebody thought I was talking about the show. You know, I hope hope it's not Daredevil or Jessica Jones or Punisher, honorary Defender member, uh, getting axed this weekend. Hopefully the Pop Culture Podcast continues to mirror Daredevil, throw in a, uh, a God-friended me next Monday as well. Just keep, keep it easy. Easy seas. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. The lies that keep us safe are the ones worth telling. <laughs>